I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Peter Moran. And you're tuned in to listen to our podcast. Listen to our podcast or we'll have rabbit for dinner. Hi, Peter. Hey, Aaron. How you doing, man? I am. I've been better. Um, <laughs> this is, uh, we're starting out episode number two with one of my favorite podcast tropes, which is one of the hosts is kind of sick. Poor baby. Poor baby. You know, some sometimes sometimes you want to po- run. You want to run people through your symptoms. Yeah, let's go through them. <clears throat> First, there's the cough. This this is going to be a heavily ep- edited episode. That's what I'm. That's basically what we're saying. Is this an episode of uh, Ask a Season Medical Professional? It could be. You know, we we bailed on that concept way too early. Yeah, this is promise. It did have promise, and we did not live up to that promise, and that's on us. But yeah, this this is this is that classic. One of the hosts probably should be sleeping. He should not be recording a podcast, but he's powering through. Some sometimes you have to wait until episode fifty to really get into really get into the sick host special. And we're we're going right in episode two, and it's also part of our larger theme. You know, our first episode was sort of was sort of bad audio quality, which we acknowledge. It's always good when uh, when someone says, "Hey, I heard your podcast." And your first in- inclination is to go, I am so sorry that you had to hear that. Now, now we're going into where one of the hosts is going to cough and his voice is going to go near the end of this podcast. So I really think that instead of listening to our podcast, we should have locked down uh, unlistenable garbage for a name. <laughs> it's, it's, it's true. I think that listen to our podcast should be actually changed to this is unlistenable garbage. It's actually a challenge. Unlistenable, like, yeah. Listen, we, listen to our podcast. Yeah. You, won't, you yeah. won't believe it. The shit that these people recorded and then decided to send to, send to the internet. Yeah, we sent it to the entire internet. The whole net. And it's, it's out there. It, it's been roundly rejected. <laughs> <laughs> That's the other thing is usually people uh, insist on recording their sick episodes and then they're like, yeah, man, uh, people depend on my, on my podcast. I got to record every week. No one would miss it if we missed a week. No, this no. This is literally episode two. No one would know. As of today was the first time that you could subscribe uh, to our podcast on iTunes. So not only would no one miss it, no one would know. It's a lovely milestone to have reached that now we're the, it's the first time we've become available and uh, nothing's really happening. One weird gripe I, I have I still is, have to go to work. It's very oh, yeah. annoying. That is really annoying. I thought, I thought we'd get on iTunes... And then I don't have to go to my job anymore. We're but, using up all the internets. Yeah, this is this is really clogging the tubes. <laughs> um, so yeah, let's uh, let's let's go to. So what one thing we want to do is have segments that open the show, so that if you don't care about the movie that we're talking about, maybe you'll find us interesting. That feels like a like a big wish and a dream, but we're going for it. So. Uh, our segment today will be much like last week's episode, which is let's talk about how we think last week's show went. We kind of talked about the audio issues. The other thing I want to talk about, Peter, is we spent quite a bit of the episode saying, under no circumstances is this going to be just a rundown of the plot. And I feel like we spent most of the episode running down the plot. I'm pretty sure we didn't do anything but run down the plot. Um, by the time we were, we were trying to keep ourselves under uh, a reasonable limit for listening because uh, people's patience does reach an end. <laughs> and I don't know exactly what that, that 
limit is, but I think we are plumbing it. By we're we're trying to find every out. plot point. Well, it's also like it's really hard to follow discussion on something if you haven't seen the movie without sort of walking people through the plot movements. And that movie has like Flash Gordon has like seven movies in it, which is kind of part of the charm. So uh, we kind of had to. You kind of you kind of have to because you can't just go and say you can't start talking about the rape ring unless <laughs> you've established why is there a rape ring? Like you can't just throw that out. Yeah, because then it might seem a little weird. It might seem weird if you don't have a ton of setup for yeah. the rape ring. I'm also bringing this up because. Now, we, we have – this is our second episode. We have our special secret pilot episode that under no circumstances will we ever release to the public. None. None. I won't have it. It, it won't happen. Let's I not figured on my deathbed I would hand my my uh, grandchildren um, in like some sort of oak-paneled room in an aging estate. I would hand them a wax cylinder with the lost episode on it just so how, I knew. How, how, do, how did you think that we recorded that first episode, Peter? <laughs> I assumed I assumed maybe free software on the internet, but uh, there's always the chance that you were in the room with whatever makes wax cylinder. Let's yeah, the only way you can listen to it is if you have one of those pianos that you put it in and then it just plays and rotates. <laughs> now, the reason I w- uh, the other reason I wanted to bring up the pilot episode is that so we talked about the rape ring that first episode as you would that that first episode Superman four also uh, has some weird rapey stuff in there. And now, what episode are we doing this week, Peter? Uh, we are studying Roman Polanski's Repulsion, someone uh, whose name has not been uh, muddied with any sort of uh, with any sort of convictions and allegations that he's a sexual predator. Well, even leaving that aside, it's a big plot point in this movie. So I guess my question is: is are we ever going to do a movie where rape is not at least a minor feature in the movie? I haven't seen Life Force, so can you uh, you warn me on that one? To be honest, I. You know, I thought about that before I asked this question. It's got great vibes all over it. it I, you know, I've seen it once, and I honestly can't remember, but if I had to put money down, I would bet on that there's something rapey in that movie. Yeah, I mean, uh, Death Wish 3 is uh, the one the episode we'll be recording after Life Force, and that is chock full of this stuff. We really, uh, we really should have spaced out our rape-related episodes. I think that might have been a good idea. The problem is when you're talking about like genre and B movie movies. Uh, it's an easy plot point to go back on. Yeah, especially like late seventies, early eighties. Like it's an easy way to like raise the stakes. And I, I don't think this movie does that, but we will get into it. But I did want to bring that up as long as we're talking about previous episodes because we're definitely establishing a pattern and it's one I am anxious to break away from. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing is, like, it's like rape stuff is like comical and goofy, as, goof- as goofy as a horrible topic can be in uh, the first two movies we did. Uh, this is, this sort is of like- rough. This is, there's there's not like a true, there's not a true full on like exploitive rape scene in it, but it, there's there's a lot of. Yeah, the, the, also, the other ones had, I guess, rape implications. Yeah. And, yeah. and whether that was, um, you know, there was actually no like on screen rapes that occurred. I never thought even that I'd be saying rape this often. If you told me when you have a podcast, you're going to say rape 40 times <laughs> in the first 15 minutes of your second show. I would have said, uh, I don't believe you. 
<laughs> um, when does like confetti explode out of our computers? Yeah, just but yeah. like one hundred mentions of sexual <clears throat> assault, or is it? I, I don't know, but uh, that is not what I took my computer into Best Buy for. So. If that happens, we're going to have a long talk with the Geek Squad. <laughs> so, and we'll get into, like, the, the um, we'll get into all the, the, the gender issues and such in the movie later on. Yeah, this, um, this whole, I feel like this that's whole a good epi- thing to clear up. Yeah, this, this whole episode kind of feels like you guys have kind of stated that you want to have a fun vibe, a hangout vibe. This episode kind of feels like, let's really test that. Can you guys have a fun discussion about repulsion and we're gonna see my guess is that we're going to uh fail miserably but hopefully you'll be entertained and um you know know to hit the unsubscribe button you had fun with the flash gordon episode uh and now you're gonna learn this is not for me and and i should i should uh take note that this is this was my idea um my blame um he's gonna be putting that in writing in our show notes signed (laughs) well because it's a movie that is really well it's a really well respected genre movie roman plansky made a few of them i wanted to tackle both like high art and low art in terms of genre offerings as we go and sort of not make any unfair distinctions between the two and I think we'll I think we'll be able to have some fun with this episode. It'll definitely be less bogged down in plot and such because it's artier than the narrative movies we've been doing so far. Yeah, and neither uh, of us had seen it. So um, as per the the rape uh, sexual assault stuff that we've gone over, sort of sort of when you're picking movies that you specifically haven't seen or one of you hasn't seen, it's sort of like. You could read a synopsis of something and be like, I don't think that this movie will have sexual assault in it, but you're kind of rolling the dice, which is kind of, I don't know, if that stuff triggers you, that's kind of unfortunate. But uh, If I the worst thing I, you could do to another human being triggers something, sure. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But uh, I had a safer, a slightly safer uh, idea for uh, something we could do for the show, which is we can use... One of my favorite film resources ever, uh, DoesTheDogDie.com, because uh, the only thing people love more than uh, sexual assault movies is uh, dog death. And so what I'm going to do for one of these segments uh, of the show as an intro that I would like to do at least, with Aaron's blessing, is to pull up the website, scroll through their ratings, pick a movie that both of us haven't seen, and we have to guess if a dog dies in the movie. You want to play that game with me, Aaron? Yeah, let's do it. So let me actually put out the card that I'm going to do because they actually put the dog rating. Yeah, you can. I've been to the website because I have a wife who, when there's a dog on screen, the first thing she wants to know, even if I hadn't seen the movie, is does the dog die? (laughs) And there's a a little dog emoji next to all the titles that, like, warns you specifically, like, the dog is weeping openly if the dog dies in the movie. Yeah, it's very clear. Just by looking at the website. The second you type in a title, you're going to know if the dog dies because the title's either going to have a crying dog next to it or a happy dog next to it. <laughs> All right, so I'm going to scroll down. I'm just going to keep scrolling and I'm not going to look at the logo. I've got my, my little card over the, the title. Okay. Have you seen uh, Friends with Benefits from 2011? The, the Justin Timberlake movie? Yeah, I think it's I, the... It, I have the, seen it. I don't remember a dog. The, the Justin Timberlake film? Uh, I haven't seen it. Do you, uh... I have seen it. Do you want to, uh... Okay, let's keep going then. But I mean, I don't Damn remember it. a second, dog. This second is poorly conceived from the start. So, uh, have you seen Frost Nixon? Uh, yeah, I, again, I don't God remember a dog. 
Okay. So, uh, Frost Nixon, the only thing I know about Frost Nixon is that Nixon had a dog named Checkers, famously. Yeah, I don't think he uh, dies mid-interview with David Frost, though. Yeah, I mean, like, the fact that the dog wasn't included in the interview, does that mean that the dog had already passed? Had the dog retired publicly from interviews, just as Nixon had? I don't know. I'm not a child of that era, so do you think that a dog dies in Frost Nixon? No. I'm going to go with yes. All right, you ready? Yeah, I can't wait to find out if the dog died in Frost Nixon. (laughs) This is a great game. Shut up. Um... The dog didn't die in Frost Nixon. <laughs> you win. Um, I mean, the... the shocking part was that there was a dog featured in Frost Nixon. If you would have asked me, is there a dog in Frost Nixon, I would have said no and been reasonably confident with that answer. So uh, that was your, your prize for that is that we are not playing Does the Dog Die Anymore? <laughs> okay. And that, what, what I feel like should have been set up a little bit better. Again, I'm not, I'm not judging your hosting skills. Uh, we're trying to come up with uh, different segments to open the show before we get into our uh, based on history raped themed movies and suck all the air out of it. So that was an attempt. I, I have a few ideas as well. Now they're not I don't we're not going to do these today, but these are potential ones for future episodes. People can vote on them or, you know, fast forward through this part. So, my first segment idea is I have a friend. Friends a strong word. Uh I have a acquaintance that I used to work with who has seen no movies. His favorite movie of all time is Iron Will, and he has seen like if he's he's one of the only people I've ever met that if you ask him Have you seen this movie, Back to the Future, Star Wars, Indiana Jones? Hasn't seen any of them. Is Iron Will a dog movie? It is. It's a Yeah. The dogs don't die, I think. It's a Disney movie. (laughs) Do you want me to to look it up? Yeah, look it up. But anyways, it is a a bobsled. Not bobsled. Is that? Bobsleds don't have dogs. Uh, Yeah. It's it's basically the Iditarod. Um, And it's his favorite movie, but he's like seen no movie. So my idea for a segment is called Has Jeremy Seen This? Where we just call him. With random movie choices each week, and ask him if he's seen a movie. Now he um, may he may block that, her calls. He has not been consulted about this segment. <laughs> yeah, I think it would work best as a um, illegal ambush. We might have to like go to Nevada or uh, a state that doesn't uh, have call recording laws to uh, fully finish this episode. I think if we just ambush Jeremy. See what we can do about that. I don't see why this wouldn't be fun. Okay, I so. mean he, he he's he's a man of hard opinions. If it's not up to the standards of Iron Will, uh, a movie that I didn't know existed until um, seconds ago. Yeah. It's also a good argument for, is every movie someone's favorite movie? Because I, I, I used to lean towards no, but if someone's favorite movie is Iron Will, it feels like there's a good chance that every movie is someone's favorite movie. So that, so so that's the has Jeremy seen this? Oh, did you ever figure out if the dogs dogs die in Iron Will? It's not. It's somehow not on their website. That is fucking crazy because there's like thirty dogs in that movie. Okay. Yeah, I actually pulled up the cover and um, what is? I'm not using the word ironically correctly, ironic correctly right now, but I don't really care. Uh, the dog on the cover of Iron Will looks just like my dog. Everybody wants to know what my dog looks like. And you can hear my dumbass dog barking right now. Can we play Does the Dog Die at the End of This Podcast if it keeps barking? (laughs) I don't know what he's so pumped about, but... He's real. I mean, we were talking about Does the Dog Die. Yeah. I think he's voting against it for a segment idea. He's Um, like, this isn't funny. 
Yeah. So the next one is um, you can't tell me what to do, and this kind of came about because we were uh, Peter was watching the movie fourteen oh eight, which is a movie I haven't seen, and I had said I had some interest in seeing it, and he said don't watch it. So my first reaction, being a child at heart, was "fuck you." I'm going to watch that movie. So I think that we should just have a segment where just one of us goes and watches movies that the other person has recommended to not watch, and then we report back if that person was right uh, or if that person go fuck themselves and they get bad advice and should feel really bad about themselves in general. Um, yeah, fourteen oh eight. I uh, I'm going to offer my non recommendation on the movie. Um, we, so I have I have a I have another segment for you. Okay, I call this one uh, edit around this, Aaron. <laughs> well, that'll be super easy because you paused for long periods of time. Like you, you need to do that. That needs to be a surprise segment where I'm in the middle of speaking, and then you like crack a beer in the microphone and yell, "Edit around this, Aaron." <laughs> like that. That would be an effective segment. That That's would true. be like your Baba Booey. I mean, the podcast would end in vicious murder. But, um, <laughs> you know, there's a segment idea. But that right there, garbage. Garbage. <laughs> not going to work. Um, and then I have another one, uh, which I think you're not going to be a fan of. But the podcast segment that I like to intro the show with is called Don't Correct Me and How Dare You. <laughs> and uh, it involves uh, long segments of the show, which I will not warn you about when they start or begin. Uh, in which, if you try and correct me, even if I am factually wrong, I will tell you, how dare you? Don't correct me. You're making me look stupid in front of all my dissolved friends. <laughs> uh, if I call you dad on any episodes, then it's really going to be embarrassing. If we end the podcast with love you too. <laughs> um, <laughs> we've come full circle. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, my last idea is uh, we can only do this segment once. Uh, and that's uh, movies we watched while getting to second base for the first time. <laughs> it's perfect. <laughs> and I'll tell you what, like, I've actually, since I jokingly thought of that segment, I don't know what my answer is. I know there was a movie, and I can't, I can tell um, you, I can tell you what movie I saw after getting to third base for the first time. But that, that, that segment's going to require a lot of research, a lot of Facebook stalking old girlfriends. <laughs> And hoping that they remember what happened there. I don't know. Pirate radio? <laughs> that, that was like 2007. Yeah, dude. I was... Uh, this, this segment got super sad. Super sad way to end this. Oh. Uh, it must have been earlier than that. Because I, I would have been 16 in 2007. So it was probably earlier than pirate radio. But. I mean, from what I've heard about pirate radio, sounds like sounds like a much better use of your time. <laughs> it was okay. It didn't derail anything. So this is a this. I think this is going to be a long running segment where we try and do uh, massive amounts of research to discover what was the film featured. Because I, I hey honestly, a, hey Ashley from sophomore year in high school. Quick question: <laughs> Were we like watching a movie? Now, thankfully, uh, that She's is like, a yeah. It was it was white chicks, obviously. It was white chicks. <laughs> I don't think you know how old I am. Uh, uh like I. I don't know. I, when we talked about costs for the podcast, you tried to pay me in like Confederate dollars. So, so I have another. I have another uh, segment idea. It's going to be as much of a hit as "Does the Dog Die," and it's called "Star Power." And uh, I'm going to tell you a movie, and I'm going to tell you my rating for it. 
but I'm not going to tell you on how many, what the scale is on for that number of stars, and I want you to guess what the scale is. Okay. I like that all yours are quiz-based. I like to get things started with the quiz, get the brain okay. moving. I don't want you to get in a stupor before all this starts. Okay, so... Um, My cough medicine stupor. So, movie, pirate radio, three stars. <laughs> Out of two boobs. <laughs> and we have a correct answer. <laughs> How'd you know that that's what the scale was? Was that really was that really a scale? No, I, I was gonna do like three out of five because it's like the most thoroughly average movie I've ever seen in my entire life. <laughs> Make sure we put all this in the show notes. Like thirty two minutes, they start randomly bagging on pirate radio for no reason. Hey, pirate radio worked. I guess time. it was three out of five, yeah. That's what you uh, want to do. You want to put on a movie not so terrible that the person leaves, <laughs> but not engaging enough that they don't mind a little fooling around. So let's um, actually... I made the mistake once with children and men. I'm going to cut out uh, the of men. <laughs> You're a uh, editing wizard dash editing monster. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what you get for your little game earlier. Um, God damn it. So I think that's it for our segments this week. Um, and I think part of the reason that we probably wanted to do more segments than we will do on most episodes is, like we mentioned at the onset, this is a pretty serious movie. So I think our jokes are going to be a little hard to come by. So we tried to really uh, tried to really put them in the forefront uh, of the episode. <laughs> now, whether that was annoying or effective, you be the judge. Please leave comments on our Patreon accounts. Um, <laughs> With your donation. With your donation. Also, again, as same as last week, uh, if you find our Patreon accounts, we have not set those up. So please let us know. Get us into contact so so that we can contact the FBI because our identities have been stolen. Uh, they've been stolen, and we'd like to get them back, but preferably the money first. Yeah, and let us know if they have mustaches because I've never been able to pull one off. But if these guys can, great. More power to them. So before Peter's going to give a rundown of the plot because that we're, we're really focused this week about not actually doing uh, just a plot by plot, and I don't think unlike Flash Gordon, I don't think that this movie really needs it to get to get the point across and for us to have some good discussion points. So, but before you do that, Peter, so I, I just want to get into a couple bullet points. So obviously this was this was your suggestion. So a couple things going into this. This was really a movie that I. In contrast to last week, Flash Gordon, where it felt like I was aware of it and I knew Ming the Merciless and I knew a few character names and a few, you know, I knew the Queen song. This movie, besides knowing that it's a Rowan Polanski movie and is very well regarded, I knew nothing about this movie. And even the title, Repulsion, I mean, I, I didn't know what it was about. I didn't know where it was going to go. And, and that's always a fun thing to have for any movie where it's where you're, you're, you're basically blind watching a movie. I've never seen a trailer, nothing that approaches giving away what this movie was going to be about. Although, it, it became very clear very early on uh, that something was off and something was going on. The other thing, uh, just in general, about doing this movie, I'm, I'm going to say I had some concerns. Not concerns in that I, I did really want to see the movie. But I do think that, you know, talking about a more serious movie with serious issues, I think this is going to be interesting for us. Because I do think that our tendency is towards more fun discussion points. And, you know, there's a... Who boy, there's a lot of heavy stuff we're going to be discussing. Um, so, if we do make jokes, I think that, uh, for my sake anyways, 
Uh, all of my jokes this week are a desperate defense mechanism. It's true. And the movie's very anxiety-producing in a lot of ways for even a, like, straight white dude. So I imagine if you're, um, I guess white doesn't really matter in this context. I'm just so used to saying that phrase. But if you're a woman, I would imagine that this movie hits the anxieties and it hit harder. Um, and I'm a, li- mo- I'm a little worried about going into the speculation well. Yeah, and I think, but I think the movie works really well for both. I think it appro- it, it, it both approaches men and women um, on their own terms. So I, w- I will I say, it I... really good. Yeah, I was gonna say. So the, to your earlier point, I think that one of the fun things about the mystery box thriller, where you really just don't know anything and you didn't even watch marketing for it, you just know it's good, is that. You truly have to throw all your expectations out the window and feel kind of naked, which is in a context where, especially if you, you know, have cable TV or on the internet, you very frequently are given context for every movie that you watch. Like, going to the theater is usually a very thought out process. You know all the big actors in it, you know who the characters are going to be, you know kind of what's going to happen in the movie unless they're purposefully misdirecting you. It is rare to find a movie where you just basically, I know who stars in it, I know who directed it, that's it. Yeah, and this uh, doesn't really have, like, a, an easy point of comparison, because even um, even Polanski, like, I hadn't seen Knife of the Water till last year, which was Polanski's debut, you know, but that I'd still heard comparisons to Dead Calm, and I think the basic structure of that movie is very simple to understand. It's, you know, two people in love with the same person... And they're on a boat together. That's yeah. th- th- This is much more the, the plot description of s- someone's going crazy. Where that could go or what that could do is really open-ended. So you don't know where it's going to go. Yeah. So I'll kind of run, I'll run through. I can't think of a better time to run through the plot real quick. So the movie begins with Carol, who works as a beautician in a nail salon, nail salon or just like a beauty salon. Uh, sort of daydreaming at work. She starts the movie seeming very lost, very confused, and confused by social interaction. And she's particularly unnerved by men right from the start. And that doesn't get any better over the course of the movie um, for reasons we'll delve into. She's sort of daydreaming. She's sort of lost. She's not really engaged. And when she returns home from work that day, she's sent home by a... uh, her boss at one point, because she's in an environment, a female environment that's very supporting, actually, at work. Her boss is a woman. She's surrounded by women. All of her clients are women. Like, it's all just, a, it's a group of women that are trying to their best to be supportive of one another. Um, and she doesn't quite even blend into that. And she goes home to her, she lives with her sister. And uh, the movie takes place in um, Britain, probably London. She's an immigrant to London with her sister, so they're kind of working the fact that Catherine Deneuve and the actress that plays her sister are both French, and she gets a lot of attention from catcallers on the street and random men on her way home. She gets the attention of one guy who proceeds to harangue and harass her into a date for the remainder of uh, his life in the movie. And he essentially um, just keeps showing up to, he's, he's haunted and obsessed with, with her um, to a very creepy degree. And she goes home. And he kind of has, has a Greek chorus that encourages him to yeah. continue to try to take her virginity in the creepiest way. Yeah, we'll dig yeah, into yeah. that, but just 
seemed like a good point to uh, to mention from the plot standpoint. The movie is all gender issues. There's no way we won't get into that. Yeah. Um, so, and then I, I've never been so scared of men. It's true. After this the, movie, it really, it really is just like, yeah, we'll, we'll get into it. Yeah, I'll also get into Roman, the fact that Roman Polanski directed this is kind of strange. So uh, the she goes home. Uh, her sister. She she lives with her sister, but her um, her sister's boyfriend, live-in boyfriend, sort of lives with them. Well, he's uh, ma- no, he's married. Oh, he's married. Yeah, that's true. But he's sort of like will stay around and like he's leaving like his toothbrush around. It pisses her off. Like yeah, he, I kind of got I kind of got the sense that like he fake goes on business trips and then goes and stays there for a night or or something like that. Because when they when they do go away very early in the movie, I think he I think they say it's a business trip that that he's taking her on. Yeah, so he's it's a two for one. He gets to have his business trip and bring along his uh, French mistress as well. Yeah. So he uh, and he's just like frumpy looking English dude, and I think the this, we get the sense that the sister's just kind of lonely and wants companionship. So the sister's much more open to men than uh, Carol is. So that's another thing. Uh, and she tells Carol that she's going on a trip, and Carol will basically be left alone in the apartment um, for a period of time while they're on this trip. So they go, they pack their bags. Um, Carol voices her her dissent with the new the new uh, boyfriend or the old boyfriend. I guess I should say it seems like he's been around for a while. Uh, voices her dissent with him, and they leave uh, after the little protest anyway. And as she is go- after the woman leaves, Carol goes back to work. That's all she really has. She doesn't seem to really bond with too many people she has one woman at work named bridget who she's friends with but like even bridget kind of understands that she's weird and, and, and seemingly progressively getting weirder yes yes as the movie goes on she Catherine Deneuve does an amazing job of communicating that there are cracks in her sanity which is becomes literal at one point in the movie she kind of descends into madness as this time goes on as she's being pursued by this this really uh, aggressive man and as the the movie goes on she eventually this man comes to her um after being yeah pushed on by his friends they go on a date it doesn't go well he is way too aggressive with her and he becomes obsessed with her this need to to possess her and she doesn't want anything to do with him and one day he goes to her apartment kicks in the door and is just like really pathetically breaking down with her he won't leave he won't leave her alone and she murders him and uh this is one of those things where you're like well you probably could ask him to leave but I mean, it also was very. You don't have it, a ton of sympathy for it. No, it, it wasn't until like it wasn't until the very end of the movie that I was even sure that he had that she had murdered him, because you know at this point you know she she hasn't gone to work as you said, she's just kind of holed up in her apartment and kind of imagining getting raped um, in the middle of the night. Which at first the first time that happens, I mean she's barring herself in. The first time that happened, I thought is this happening for real? Then eventually, so when he when he breaks in, she's kind of been you know like you said cracking up. She's been in a room. She's you, there's all these cool uh, surrealistic touches in the movie, like the walls literally cracking. So when he does come in, uh, it's very hard to tell if if he's actually gone gone in there and did get murdered, or if that was another thing that she's kind of imagined. Like she's imagined, she's set up a scenario where he comes to her apartment and she gets to kind of feed her paranoia and then she gets to sate that paranoia by 
killing a vision of him. Yeah, you yeah. don't really know until the end if it's if it's really happening or not because so much of what she's doing is is is, is nutty. So she kills him. Uh, and as this is happening, the apartment is falling apart around her, just like she's falling apart, very much like the movie Possession, and sort of mirroring her mental state as the apartment is is, is crashing and cracking. And she's, she even says, like, uh, I must get this crack mended at one point, discussing this crack in the wall, which is her being, like, sort of recognizing that she's losing it too rudderless to be able to do anything about it. Yeah, and, and she's doing a bunch, like, we're getting to the point where she's just kind of doing stuff like ironing the shirt with the iron not plugged in and stuff like that. I mean, this is kind of a longer segment in the movie, but there is, you know, a good good 30 minutes of her just kind of in an apartment by herself and slowly losing her mind until the landlord shows up. And the landlord shows up because, like we were saying, she has money troubles, which also is part of the... Uh is this happening? Is this not happening? Nature of the uh, apartment falling apart. Clearly living in some sort of slum. Uh, her landlord is is used to strong-arming people and taking advantage of them. He sort of pushes his way into the apartment, notices things are very awry. He finds the... We'll talk about it later. This rabbit thing. But he uh, he comes in. He starts, he starts off very, very brusque and rude and then he starts to see that she's sort of this shell she's shell she's very vulnerable Mm. and he starts to try and take advantage of that he starts sweetening up to her and she's not responding at all and eventually he um assaults her like like comatose she might as well have been in a coma not respond yeah she hands him the rent and then that's like the most active active conversational thing that she pulls off Uh, he starts to assault her and she gets him off uh wrong choice of words sorry she gets him (laughs) we're not doing phrasing oh yes phrasing uh she gets him off of her, fortunately, she takes a straight razor to him. And one of the things I wanted to note before we, we get too far is the two murders that she commits, this is the second, are both shot in first person from the mur- the victim's perspective, which is a really cool technique that sort of lets men in on the, the horror of what's going on. It gives men perspective... You, I don't think I don't, I, this is a really simplified version of the message, and but like it's yeah, no, no, I, 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 I get what you're saying that she because she looks like a terrified animal when yeah, she's, she's doing she's, it. So, she's lashing out against what she sees yeah. as a threat, and when she's pinched, it, when you put her in the it, corner, yeah. So, so it, it's not about glee. It's not about. It's just about this is what I need to do to feel like I am protected and that I am safe. So, and he turns on his, his nice guy, which is like a really gross, well, it's basically like a gender studies term for guys who think that they, it's it's related to the friend zone, guys who think that because they're nice to a girl that they somehow deserve their body. He turns on his nice guy for her. He's like taking off his hat and he's like trying to get her some water and he's like comforting, coaxing her and then... We, we should be clear, this is before he gets murdered. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And then he gets murdered for that. Not so nice. The movie, yeah, the movie is clearly talking to that. So anyways, so another thing I wanted to note is that she is not getting rid of these bodies. She is not acting in a way that, that leads us to believe that she's a true, well, A, even a true threat to the outside world or a threat to, like, a persistent serial killer threat. Well, people are coming into her, yeah. Yeah, men come to her apartment. They threaten her. She lashes out out of a, a paranoia and an inability to communicate, and uh, she puts them down. 
what happens basically in the the end, which happens very very quickly, is her sister comes home. Yeah, her sister comes home with her hubby, and they they, they basically find her in shambles. She's unable to do anything, and the apartment is really even worse than before. And they find the corpses, and it's just because she's not hiding them. She threw the the. The first guy just into the bathtub, I think, after hitting him over the head. It was just there to put it in, and then she stopped yeah. bathing. But that, that part, because they do this great thing where they don't show what's in the bathtub. I kind of assumed it was going to be her dead in there, and that she had killed herself. Now, this is this is me taking a very modern influence of movies, because I think, I think if this movie was made today, that could easily be what they would have done with it, because... There's nothing a movie likes more than a fake-out that this person didn't actually kill all these people, and it's just extra insane. But no, I mean, they <clears throat> they don't show the bathtub, but they eventually, you, you figure out that he must have been in the bathtub because they go into her room, and there she is, under the bed. And it's not just the couple. The, the neighbors are just kind of evaporated the walls between their units and are sort of acting as this like mob that's just sort of invading each other's space because something has gone like some sort of social barrier has been breached so now they feel like they deserve to be able to just walk into people's apartments and take advantage of that so it's it's sort of the yeah, and, and the, i've lived in apartments i mean that's what happens yeah exactly i've never i've actually never i made it through multiple apartments without talking to neighbors that's the goal. To be fair, I own a house now. That's also the goal of house ownership is to not really meet your neighbors. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's something that most people can probably identify with. Actually, if you've never lived in an apartment before, who are you? First, yeah. first, yeah. What what rich fantasy world do you live in? <laughs> you never you've never always owned people. a. There's someone listening who's like, "Well, my family died at a young age, and I inherited the house, asshole." <laughs> Even if you came for money, at some point you should have to live in an apartment just to know what it's, it's like. This is a really fancy apartment. Yeah, just exactly, exactly. I believe they but. call them condos. <laughs> All right, back yeah. to the grim despair of a comatose woman under a bed. <laughs> so they flip the bed. They 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 start addressing her, and then the final the final shock of this movie is not is not the um the shock that you know a jaded modern audience might expect, which is that. That she would be crazy the whole time. She didn't kill anybody, but, you know, she's just letting the apartment go to, to shit. And her sister's going to be real ticked at her. But instead, the sister and the husband or the boyfriend just have a lot of pity for her because she's See, I, see I thought that the boyfriend gives her... Because the boyfriend carries her out of the room. And I think that he gives her a really creepy look. He does, but... I, I don't know. I feel like... Th I feel this like this is going to be one of the open-ended questions, because let, let's finish this. Let's go to the last shot, because there's some things important. that I want to get into. Yeah. Okay, so the whole movie, you're like, why is she so afraid of men? And then you're like, you have this lingering, horrible feeling that you're like, she was assaulted in the past or something. And I think the last shot pretty much all but admits it. It's a shot of them as children somewhere, and her staring scared off... Uh, and cam off camera, um, and you can tell that, that it's the girl because the camera zooms in. You can tell it's Carol because the camera not only zooms in on her, but she has blonde hair and her sister has brown hair. So it's it's that Carol uh, might have been assaulted as a child and has been carrying around um, by by her dad is the implication. I, yeah, I thought it was by her dad or a headmaster at a school or something like that. But, but she's but, looking right at her dad in that picture. Yeah. And her dad yeah, is wearing she, a tank top. And throughout the movie, she's she's fantasizing 
fantasizing is not the is not the right word for this but she she there's there's nightmareizing nightmareizing of someone breaking into her room and raping her and that person has a tank top tank, uh, a wife beater so, so yeah I, I I the implication I thought was pretty clear that it was her dad so let's jump right into this this movie is very is, is very under it's trying to be understanding without being super condescending of sexual assault survivors uh which is not a, a light topic at all but it is interesting coming from someone like roman polanski roman polanski famously uh raped a woman uh raped a girl wo- wo- and woman's it, a really yeah yeah woman's not the right term there yeah by all accounts and has been skirting the law for years uh uh, about it as well he's he was a famous when even when he was he was married to his wife he was a womanizer and he didn't treat his wife well at all he was very emotionally and perhaps physically abusive well and this kind of this kind of goes into the you know the shining is a great depiction of alcoholism written by someone in the throes of alcoholism as well the victimhood that comes with that yeah so even though he, even though he was the perpetrator of those horrors against his own family, it doesn't excuse it, and I want to be very clear about that. I think this kind of fits into that same mold of here's someone who wrote or who made a movie that is one of the best depictions I've seen about you know being a sexual assault survivor and what that does to someone, and just I think depression based on feeling like the men in, in someone's life are out to get them, made by someone who under any circumstances was 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 one of the scary men in women's lives definitely so uh, and, and I, I agree with you that there's there might be some sort of introspection happening which would be actually more forgivable this was obviously made before he ever perpetrated those acts or was accused of perpetrating those acts but he was still um by all accounts a womanizer and just didn't treat women all that well so i'm curious if this was him making a horror movie wherein he was unpacking his own anxieties about how he was treating women which is like a very friendly reading of the movie because the movie itself would seem to indicate like it's it's not always like a great way to do this but i would call this a feminist horror movie because of how much sympathy it has for the assaulted and how it's not exploitive of her really at all um well it's it's not just it's not just uh sympathy it's entirely from her perspective and it only breaks that perspective during the the moments where she's lashing out in violence and breaking that sort of social circle and starting to yeah to that effect she She's also goddamn gorgeous. That is sort of a curse for her because it's inviting unwanted attention. She has this long, luxurious, gorgeous blonde hair that she uses as sort of a, a cover. And it also, that, and it sort of reminded me of this, this idea that I recently heard from someone that was talking about uh, burqas, niqabs, and hijabs from the other side of the, the equation. We typically think of them as tools of oppression of women in, um, in Islamic countries. Uh, and uh, a lot of women have argued that, that wear the niqab and the hijab that, uh, or one or the other. It's actually a tool of liberation because they can walk freely on the streets without being seen as objects to be, you know, marked off as parts, like a pretty, she has a pretty face, she has pretty lips, she has, you know, a nice ass, like she, it can be recontextualized as something that wherein women can use that to not be objectified by men. And I was getting those flashes of that idea that I heard a while ago watching this movie because like, yeah, her blonde hair is just like covering up her face and she's like trying to avoid eye contact with men because it's 
both, I mean, maybe from a sense of deep-seated shame, but also from, like, a sense of wanting to protect herself from being exploited and harmed by these men. She's being constantly pushed forward by friends, just like the men are being... Or friend... Actually, no. Her sister and her friend Bridget both push her to, like, you know, isn't it fun to date? And You should go, you know, pursue... Well, yeah, her, her, her friend tells that great... Um... Maybe not great story, but her friend tells that story about going to the movies with her date and they're laughing. And then, you know, she she eventually turns to the idea. But it is true that there's almost two elements of horror at, at work here. There's the there's the major one, which is that all the men in her lives are predators or out to get something from her. And she she is kind of stuck sleepwalking through the world and trying to escape inside herself but then there's the other horror, which is that the people that are closest to you don't recognize, besides just, hey, something wrong with you, that there's something wrong. I mean, there's clearly something beyond just, hey, are you feeling all right today? Carol is walking around, I mean, in, in almost like a waking coma. Her her eyes express no emotion for the most part. Even when she murders uh, her, her wannabe suitor, the eyes are dead. And, and, you know, she does a great job of, of portraying that, but there's, there's something, there's something majorly wrong. in the fact that it's not just that she's besieged by, by men, but her, her attempts to cry for help for the people that she's closest with get completely overlooked. I think that's totally true. And, and it's a lot of it is just narcissism. People, men and women around her are just kind of absorbed in their own issues. But like the one there's, there is a group of women that reaches out to her, just her boss and her coworkers to like try and help. But like Bridget is obsessed her, her coworker. Bridget is obsessed with her own issues and she only wants to talk about those and tell this is there's one moment in the movie where she breaks that sort of uninterested stare and that's when she's talking about that date to the movie. Yeah, and she's talking about Charlie Chap, a Charlie Chaplin movie, and she's just Bridget's just relating a really obscure comedy bit from it. Yeah, and and then she goes right back into comatose because she's describing the scene from the movie, and then when she's like, "Yeah, we went out and saw this movie on this date," and that's when she kind of recedes back into herself because it wasn't something that she could just enjoy in a vacuum with her friend anymore. Basically, this entire gender that is predatory towards her that uh, is now back in the equation. Yeah, and none, and Bridget and her sister both seem, don't seem to be in uh, healthy relationships. As long as we're talking about, um, about her sister's boyfriend, I want to stop there for a sec because I got the sense he had at one point assaulted uh, Carol. I think that that's, it's implied that if he didn't, that he could be victim number three because he would make a pass at her, like a very aggressive sexual pass or an assault on her. Um, well, here's a couple things that I noticed. I, I, uh, yeah, so, I, go ahead. I don't necessarily buy that he actually assaulted her, but I do get that he's just this sort of, he's just a, one of the other men that's just a leering sexual beast that can't keep it in his pants. And even, and even his, her sister blames her for... The attention doesn't really even blame him. So yeah, and I, I think I, I think you're right at a minimum that there was some of that unwanted advances. Or I mean, he kind of goes up to her and pinches her on the cheek at the very beginning. I mean, there's there's clearly some inappropriate physicality that she's not comfortable with. So when when she was having those nightmares of someone breaking into the, to her room at night and raping her, it wasn't until later in the movie that I at first I thought that that was him. I thought that was the boyfriend. I thought that's what she was remembering. It wasn't until later that I realized it wasn't 
the boyfriend. And that's what I thought it was, the dad. That can definitely be coloring some of my impressions of this because that's what I thought it was implying from the get-go. And the reason I thought that, the person who breaks into her room and rapes her in these uh, nightmare sequences is wearing a wife beater. The entire movie, she is very close to this wife beater that belongs to her sister's boyfriend. There's a part where it's, it's draped over her bed when they're gone. There's a part where she is smelling it out of the laundry. And when she's doing that ironing where it's not plugged in, she's ironing his tank top. So despite her distance and not wanting to be around men in any way, shape, or form, this tank top of her sister's boyfriend keeps recurring in weird places. And then that look he gives her at the end is a very creepy stare down at her when he's carrying her out at the end of the movie. So I feel like there's something bigger going on. It's possible. I mean, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't deny it. I think the movie is in general sort of implicating all men in yep. this this leering, creepy sexual uh, objectification of women. I, I think that I think that any reading of the movie that is um, that 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 says that you know men have hurt her and intend to hurt her future is probably has good standing. Is there a single man in the movie that treats her with any level of respect? No, and even, you know, there there was a point where I wasn't, you know, because sometimes a movie that you're not familiar, as, as, the, as the themes of the movie start to coalesce, you don't know where everyone stands in relation to those themes. So the her, her potential suitor, I wasn't entirely sure where the movie stood with him for quite some time. I wasn't sure if the movie was on his side. Or if the movie was lumping him in with the rest of the men that she feels are out to get her. Because he has those discussions. I mentioned that kind of Greek chorus of, of Woody Allen and some other guy who are, are, just, are just kind of there to be like, you need to have sex with this person. What are you doing? Why aren't you doing this wrong? You suck at this. And he was, he was kind of telling them to back off. But it wasn't until later that it was clear that he was telling them, at least in, from my reading, that he wasn't telling them to – he was telling them to back off because it made him feel ashamed that he hadn't accomplished this. Because at first you're kind of like, is he telling them to back off because he doesn't like what they're saying? But he doesn't like how, how that makes him look. I, I agree. It's more that he, he doesn't like the challenge from other men. And the scene that really makes him freak out is when one of the guys implies that they should, he should have her over to the place, get her drunk, and then they should all go at her. Uh, also, the worst thing in the movie is uh, one of those guys pronounces uh, Cassius Clay as Cassius Clay, yeah. <laughs> uh, which is, like, really offensive. That's, like, straight up, like, a needle in your ear. Yeah, like, no, that thought, was I, that was definitely uh, out of all the things that men did in this movie, that was by far the most offensive. It, it, it really hurts <laughs> to listen to. Uh, I, yeah. I I should say that that the thing that finally turned me because I wasn't sure. Now I I thought the suitor was a creepy asshole, but sometimes it's hard to tell where the movie's coming from, especially based on who made the movie. Yeah, it's it, true. It wasn't until it wasn't until they go on their date and that date is predicated by him yelling at her for missing the date which 
always how you should start dates. If someone is late for your date, you should find them and then yell at their faces that they didn't show up for the date. And then be like, fine, so come on the date now. And it's, then it's, it's, and, it's and that part of the sexual it's also part of the sexual objectification and ownership of her where he he was like, It was my plan. That's what my plan was for you for the evening. It's like, well dude, did she really want to go on this plan or did you just make her do it? It was really uncomfortable. And then to kind of underline that the movie was not on his side, they had that scene. They kind of cut to the end of the date where they're both in the car and, you know, they're having the goodbye kiss. And she, again, might as well be frozen solid. He leans in to kiss her. She does not reciprocate. And he gets angry at her for not reciprocating the kiss. Instead of getting the hint, he leans back in for another kiss. And it was like, okay. The movie's absolutely not on his side because there's a lot of uncomfortable moments in this movie. I'm actually going to say that 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 whole scene is the most uncomfortable because the rest of the people that are when they're trying to attack her or there's it's clearly an attack that's happening and and everyone knows what the score is. That part was extra creepy because in that moment he didn't think he was doing anything wrong to to yeah. a level that was so it was so uncomfortable, and my guess would be this is one of the, the shitty things about having two men talk about this movie, um, is that my guess is that is wildly common for men to, lead it, to lean in for a kiss and just kiss while the woman sits there and does not reciprocate and just literally just waits and prays for it to be over. I Just because she's like afraid or just so embarrassed or just a mix of shame and like pressure to complete the act anyways just just because otherwise she wouldn't we should feel like less of a woman like yeah that's some, this is something we probably could have this would have been a great movie to have a female guest on um yeah this this was a terrible idea i don't know what <laughs> yeah uh, oh and uh the best yeah because you, you know what you know I, I will say as the kind of disclaimer is that i do understand that that to us this is a look into probably something that we don't need to feel on a daily basis but this kind of crazy quote-unquote crazy surrealistic horror movie may be a lot of common threads for what women go through every day and uh one of the advantages of this show and us taking on genre stuff is we get to tackle everything because one of the reasons the genre is so ghettoized is that people think about it just as monsters and slashers and aliens and shit and don't think that the movie has anything to say necessarily uh, this movie is a terrible example of that because this is known as like an art house <laughs> movie first and then, uh, you know, a psychological thriller second and then horror movie somewhere down the line because horror is also very ghettoized. And one of the nice things about the show is because of the format, we can talk about anything because genre movies do talk about everything. Mm-hmm. And it'll be nice to kind of dig into stuff like this that we might, ne- might not necessarily get talked about on every podcast. I also want to dive into some of the craziness in the movie starting with... I actually, I, yeah, let's do that. I want to start out with the craziest part of this movie. I, which, I, I felt like it was respect, respectful and true to the movie to discuss the gender stuff right up front and then dive back into it as we go rather than try and skirt around it, just at, treat it like yeah, a straight th- horror movie. That would have been really disingenuous. Yeah, agreed. And and this lets us do the, uh, we get to sandwich it. We get to have the serious talk in the middle and then it's jokes on either side. I did want to talk about the craziest aspect of this movie. Which was the very beginning um, when he, when the suitor first goes to Carol and says, "Let's go have dinner," uh, and he says, I, "She says I can't, I can't have dinner. I'm having dinner with my sister." And then he presses and says, "What are you guys having?" 
and he said she says rabbit and that's when he says didn't all the rabbits get killed off that yeah. was that was one, that was one of my the weirdest parts of the movie because I, I like the idea of setting a movie in an alternate universe where just one thing is different like something very mild and this is set in a world that's just like ours except there's no rabbits <laughs> it's like a weird eraser it's like it's like razorhead is like a hundred things are different from our world but this is just the one yeah just just rabbits are very uncommon <laughs> i was thinking about that and i couldn't find any straight answers through some google searching um i wrote down that line too i think one on like a literal level, I think it's relating to some sort of there's there might have been some sort of plague, like maybe rabies broke out among rabbits or something. Because I know I I read a book on rabies specifically uh, a while back, and Britain in this time had a ton of anxiety about uh, rabies outbreaks. I swear to God, this better relate to the movie, and you're not just ruining my alternate universe theory. <laughs> I think that maybe might be something like there was some sort of some maybe not rabies, but there might be something that like. They had to kill off all the rabbits, and they couldn't be done for. They couldn't be kept for sport or eating anymore. Well, as long as but, we're talking about the rabbit, as long as we're talking about the rabbit, and you're ruining my crazy idea of an alternate universe that just has one one fact one one thing factored in. I like uh, that though. Um, <laughs> just it's it's the same universe except cars don't have doors. <laughs> I mean, that's how every action movie is, right? They pick, like, three things that don't happen in real life, and they're like, yeah, that's enough. Yeah. Um, um, sorry, I keep interrupting you. Oh, no, it's fine. Because I'm just being more interesting. You're definitely being more interesting. <laughs> your your voice is not giving out. Think if I was to rate, uh, rate our performance on this podcast, you would get a B plus. I'd oh, get thanks. an A minus still. But yes, 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 yes. I'm not, I'm not discounting your interestingness. I'm just putting myself above you. Me at my best is still better than you at your worst. I get it. This is all getting edited out. Anyway. No, so, I need it to not be. <laughs> so as long as we're uh, as long as we're talking about the rabbit, and that's why we kind of started the show with, with that. The rabbit is almost a symbol of I'm I'm actually surprised how how much the rabbit factored in to a symbol of her uh, degradation, a symbol of her uh, deteriorating mental state. I thought it was going to be some throwaway line, like the line I was talking about, I think we're having rabbit. I thought they were all killed off. Because basically the rabbit is introduced to the movie by, which is kind of a weird thing relating the rabbit to Carol, because started off the movie with the man uh, basically rejecting the rabbit that the sister has been, spent all day preparing and has made, made gone to great lengths to get this fucking rabbit that apparently don't aren't common anymore in this version of britain he rejects it and says look i'll take you out to dinner with yeah he seems <laughs> super annoyed that she's having dinner with with her sister you're at your mistress's like shitty flat apartment that's coming apart at the seams like eat whatever she prepares as long as it looks like it's edible and perform your deed and go home like <laughs> You don't have to step in this person's life and shit all over them for trying to do something nice for you. <laughs> yeah, and so throughout the throughout throughout the movie, the rabbit keeps showing up, and there's parts missing out of it, and eventually she just kind of leaves it out. And you know, my big takeaway actually from the rabbit, I, I thought it was a good metaphor. It was definitely creepy looking, but I will say there is no way that David Lynch didn't see this movie and think that's what I'm making the eraser head baby look like dude i was thinking the exact same thing especially with this like stark black and white photography and it's just this creepy like lump of flesh because the rabbit has been cooked 
once it starts to degrade. Yep. And on some base level, the rabbit, like rabbits are, like, I'm just spitballing here. I have no formed theories on this. Like, she has a sort of, like, rabbit-like innocence and timidity to her if she's supposed to be the rabbit. Or, on the other hand, if she's not supposed to be the rabbit, it's supposed to represent something greater, like some sort of, like... Because rabbits are known, in particularly in Western culture, for being great fornicators, <laughs> for uh, copulating all sorts of children, and just uh, your your knowledge rabbits. your knowledge of rabbits just continually astounds me. <laughs> or if she's supposed to be the rabbit, it also makes sense because of her timi- her timidity, and then the fact that you know when she needs to, she can like kind of lash out and get out. Well, I suppose you know I I haven't thought about that's this a until super I- that's a super literal. It is, but but, take. but it kind of it kind of fits because I mean the rabbit is kind of known as being always on the lookout for predators, and uh, I mean that's basically the only thing that exists in a rabbit's world. Makes them more vulnerability, yeah, yeah. It's predators, so I don't think it's that literal of a, of a of a reading. In that, until you started mentioning, I never thought about it that way. But there's a lot of parallels to just how rabbits behave in the wild in general. So yeah, uh, th- gold star is what I'm saying, basically. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's 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 not a fully formed theory, but it's something. And then one of the reasons that the rabbit is just left out, and it continually freaks out people when they run into it, it freaks out the landlord. Bridget gets to see. I think. Do you know what this this was? At one point, Bridget like looks in Carol's purse, and there's some piece of the rabbit. I th- all that matters is it's, it's the heart. There. It's the heart of the rabbit. I wasn't sure if it was the ra- that or the rabbit's head, because the rabbit is sort of this, like, amorphous blob at this point, because it's just, like, this bloody lump. Yeah, and I wasn't I wasn't clear why the heart was put in there in the first place. She just wanted to take it with. But that, that might just be... That also might just be... And I think this is the safest way to go, unless we really want to dive deep into into fan theory zone. So that, uh, that might just be, like, her being crazy. Yeah, but her friend notices it. That, yeah. that that's a scene that's not from Carol's perception. It's definitely is definitely from her friend's perception. I think there's more than a few parts of this movie that I like I didn't I didn't really get the symbolism of the banjo players either, besides maybe just, hey, sometimes you owe your friend who plays a banjo a favor. Like, I have no idea what that meant. I love that. That reminded me of the third man with the zither music, where it's like, it seems a little out of place. It um, adds to the eeriness, because it's just like... Well, it's not just once, too, and they linger on it. Like, they're... Yeah. The, those banjo players, like, she looks out the window at one point. One time, she just leaves the scene, and then it just kind of waits a minute, and then the banjo players walk around. Yeah, are these, are these like, uh, Polanski's friends from Poland who came over to... Those guys? Yeah, I'm, I'm not... Yeah, I just have... I have no idea what the... I don't know some what... sort of folk music. Some sort of, like... Yeah, I'm not sure what the eth- symbolism is. Music. I think... I think the symbolism exists in it. But there... I mean... I think I think it wh- why I called this proto Lynch earlier is that it does have a lot of very surrealistic touches. And, you know, kind of goes full nuts in the last... Uh, last ten minutes or so. When the when the arms are coming through the walls. And the, the yes. hallways get longer. Even early on, we we mentioned the walls cracking. I paused it because I was pretty sure there was supposed to be like like there's flesh in between those walls. There's there's a lot of great horror imagery in this, which I think is what made it good for the show. Is 
that the apartment not only represents her and her anxieties coming in on her, but the physical threats that come into her apartment. The apartment seems to bend around reality, and that's one of the, the moments where the, the, the arms are coming through the wall. is very day, It's very proto-Day of the Dead. There's a lot of proto-horror movie stuff in here that's pretty impressive. And there's a, a sequence where she gets called uh, on the phone, and there's just heavy breathing, which is... It is straight out of Black Christmas and slasher movies of the 80s. Yeah, and the um, clock the clock ticking too to kind of um to kind of go along with her sanity like that's such a common trope nowadays but 1965 how often was that paired? I, yeah. I I don't know an I don't know an answer there but I I could if you ended up telling me yeah this was kind of the first movie that really used the clock ticking as kind of um to emphasize her slipping sanity you know that that wouldn't shock me, I guess. And, and I, I should note that she's eventually like her boss is very understanding, but she's just like sent home from work altogether. Um, she is, and she is. It's further isolating her inside the apartment. She is will... not. Yeah. No, go ahead. Sorry. She is not um, venturing out for any real reason. She's probably not eating much. She's kind of wasting away. Like he brings her a glass. The landlord brings her a glass of water, and it's like she's drinking it like. I'll have some sustenance. I guess I'll stay alive for a little longer. Yeah, like, com- uh, comatose really is. I mean, she, yeah. she she's barely conscious. I will say though, I think what probably could have helped her entire situation. There's the early scenes where, you know, there's the clock ticking, and, and before her sister leaves, she's kind of being slowly uh, driven insane. One thing besides the clock ticking and her just being isolated in her room. Uh, you know, the other thing that's kind of driving her insane, her her sister having uh, loud orgasm noises while she's with her boyfriend. And I kind of felt like a lot of the movie could have been solved if maybe she just had, like, a TV in her room. <laughs> Something to break up the noise. Yeah, it, it felt like it felt like some sort of distraction could really calm things down. Because obviously that's that's in the early phases where she's... She's getting worse and worse and worse. And I get it. Like, if you just sit at night and listen to your siblings have sex, you know, you can only take that for so long. But it but it feels like a TV, a radio, maybe some earplugs. It feels like it feels like there were options to help her <laughs> not have to deal with this on a nightly basis. I know. Or just, you know, the sister plays music in the other room while they're having sex. I mean, don't, don't a lot of people do that? Well, I don't. I don't think. I don't think you can really blame the sister here. Like, I think everybody deserves a little bit of blame for the fact that this girl is terrified by the sounds of her sister's orgasms and just kind of is like, "Oh, brother," and puts a pillow over her head. I think "Oh, brother" might be selling it short a little. No, like, <laughs> I think I perfectly nailed it. Slowly being driven crazy. Oh, brother, oh, brother. But okay, so I'll I'll uh, inject a little bit of personal stuff in here. Uh, not super personal, but yeah, how um, personal? We're talking about siblings having sex in the next room. How? No, no I know, for, I know for a fact that your brother yeah. listens to this podcast. So <laughs> let's so, really watch out where we go. No, that. no, no, nothing like that weird. Uh, it's, it's about my parents. <laughs> there's a thing where you, she feels like she's both. She has, she's sexually anxious as well as. She's actually anxious because she doesn't want to engage with men, but she's also getting social pressures to go out and have sex. So, like, this orgasm coming to the room is, like, a total one of the first invasions. Like, her sister's suitor 
and and his toothbrush and shit is one invasion, and then the next one is the orgasm, and it's just like thing after thing that's just poking in her and playing with her anxieties. And there is something, and the personal note is that like, and this is something that I think a lot of people could agree with, especially after like, let's say like a breakup, or you're just like lonely, or you've been single for a while, and like you're not clicking with anybody, or you're not engaging with anybody, or finding anybody that you really like. It helps to to hear your siblings have sex. <laughs> no, when your friends are your friends or your loved ones or whatever are like seemingly very happy in a relationship, it's or like your your bro friends are talking about like oh yeah I want to date it went well or whatever. Uh, that's the most polite way that I could have phrased yeah. that. Uh, but uh, I had a date it went well. Ooh, ooh that's locker room talk. Yeah. A, a wink would be a little much there. Yeah. We had a respectful evening. <laughs> yeah. Although if I was still dating, I feel like that would be the most I would ever say to anyone at this point because I would hope I was never this at any point in my life, but I don't think I've ever I, been, yeah, that sherry. Yeah, but I mean the, you know, it felt like tangential to people I knew. It's true. And that ties into the dudes that are talking about, like, ribbing each other about, like, not getting laid. And, it's, it, and I think the just the whole point I was trying to make is just, like, it, sex causes anxiety, even for people that are sexually healthy. And a, and a lot of that comes from, like, Billy and his girlfriend seem happy. Why can't I find anyone that makes me happy? Like on an emotional or sexual, like, like that's just something that happens to you when you're single or you're in a bad relationship or something. So that's something that when it happened, I was like, Oh yeah, that's really uncomfortable. I lost some like of that direct anxiety with her as the movie went on. And I more like viewed her as like a, someone that I had sympathy for rather than someone that I like directly identified with. That was an early stage in me being like, everyone knows that anxiety. The discomfortable anxiety of, of not feeling socially connected to other people. Yeah, and I think she, I, I think she takes it to a different level too, because she's not just like I would almost describe her as, and this is probably a result of her past trauma, but I would almost describe her as being like asexual, like completely uninterested in sex as a concept. At least by the time that we meet her, I very well might have been projecting there. But I, but actually no, I, I the reason I say that that she feels anxious about not participating is that she could just like walk past a lot of these guys, but but she chooses her her suitor. Carol chooses her suitor to go on this date, but like she she essentially agrees to go on the date. I feel like she's at least somewhat playing with the concept. Do, that does she like, does she agree to go on the date, or does she get yelled at to go? It's on true. The date? It's true. She's she seems to at least be somewhat exploring the idea behind like, oh, I should get out and meet somebody. See, I I, I mean, maybe maybe the back half of the movie is the forefront of my mind, so that's why I don't really agree with you. But I do feel like from from Jump Street, I don't I don't want to I don't want to be the person that says stuff like that. Um, that I, I do. <laughs> I do think that from the beginning of this movie that she is the first uh, interaction with her suitor that we see. Obviously, we know that they've seen each other before. I think it's wildly clear that she has no interest. She just wants to get home. He's pressuring her, and she's making up excuses. Now, she's having more um, verbal interaction with him than she's going to have later in the movie. But I still think that it holds true that... She has no interest from the get-go. I, I, I disagree. I, I think that she's pulling back layer by layer. She's pulling back layer by layer from society, and that's one of the things that I saw is that, like, she's at least talking and making eye contact with people 
at the beginning. And, I agree. And that, I agree that she gets worse as the movie progresses, but I think that her interest in men in general, I, I don't think that that gets worse. Yeah, I don't know. It just makes it. I more think it's interesting start- for it makes it more interesting for me to feel like she's like feels you know ninety percent anxious about going on this date with this guy, but ten percent anxious about saying no when everybody else is off dating. The anxiety about just being afraid around men is so much greater than her other anxiety but like that's part of being human is having two conflicting ideas in your head and i saw a little bit of both see i, I didn't see i mean she it's such a short period she of doesn't time even, the movie too i guess but even that quote-unquote date that ends in the creepy kiss like we don't see that date she bolts from the car though and she could have bolted way earlier if she wasn't at least humoring him i don't know i think she i, I think she felt threatened i think he he approached. She feels threatened always. True, but even even in in relation to going on that date, he comes up to her, he yells at her, he says, "Why didn't you go on the date?" She's like, "I don't, I don't know, I don't, I'm sorry," and you know he kind of berates her and kind of forces her into going on the date. And the second that he, I mean, we we don't see what that date is like. We know that she goes. But the second that she has a chance to bolt out of that car, she takes it. So I guess, I mean... But she bolts into traffic. So it implies to me that she thinks that she's like, she can't take anymore, but she's at least tolerating him socially up till then. Maybe. Or, yeah, she can't take anymore, or she got the opening that this is now socially acceptable for her to leave, and she's bolting. Yep. And and you can't blame her. There's a line where he says, is it something I've done? And then he goes back in for the second kiss. This is later when he comes to the apartment. He says, is it something I've done? After oh, he breaks okay. down the door and he says, is it something I've done? And my note is, yes, you schmuck. She's never shown any interest in you. What does he like about her except for her looks? She's She, like, doesn't make eye contact with her him. She doesn't talk to him. She's meek. Like, I have no sympathy for this guy because he's... There's nothing he could find sexy about her. Because no, and also... We, a, but, apart from her looks because she's just not engaging with him at all. And it's not, like, a hard-to-get kind of thing. Like... She is totally disinterested in him. But see, that that undermines what you just said about how I think she, she, she had a glint of hopeful. I think she becomes less interested in him. And by the time that this is happening, she is just, like, gone. And I think she's not even specific interest in him. It's just an idea that it's a guy that seems somewhat respectful, seems like he has money, seems like some... Like, he's not, like, a total, like, weirdo. It seems like someone who's, like, somewhat normal. And she doesn't know normal, right? She is, she's not normal. She doesn't know normal. I think in the beginning she's like, well, I guess it might as well be someone that I'm going to at least humor for these dates. And then as it goes on and she realizes more and more what that date actually means, that it's eventually going to culminate in him making an approach at her, that's when she's like, oh, fuck, I'm out here. It was, it was a half-hearted experiment from the start, and she is out of there. I don't know. I'm not saying she had specific interest in him. She doesn't show any in the whole fucking movie, which is why he is so much creepier. Yeah, I, I mean, I definitely, I definitely think that he's he's definitely the wolf in sheep's clothing, and and that kind of leads to an interesting moment. You know, we talked about the landlord coming in and that razor that he eventually, uh, she eventually kills the landlord with. Uh, she at, at one point thinks about killing herself with pretty early in the movie, actually. So when the landlord came, you know, you, you mentioned that he has his nice face on. He's playing Mr. Nice Guy. I thought he was supposed to be a nice guy at first, yet I was still terrified of him. And I'm like, oh, this is how powerful this movie is. Here's this landlord who 
means no harm to this person. But because of, you know, the way that uh, that she shot, the way that Carol is acting, you feel like this person is another threat. And I thought, wow, what a great what a great way of showing that when you feel unsafe, that anyone coming into your life, that's a man, you know, at this point, I didn't know what was going to happen. And my exact note was that the landlord coming in underlines that all men are terrifying. This is before he tries to do anything. I wrote that. And that whole that whole scene, and then my next note is, oh, never mind, he is terrifying. That whole scene feels like a police interrogation. And it's, it's kind of slowly dawned on me that he was using all these police manipulative things. He was opening and closing the shades. He was circling around her. He was asking her uh, buy-in questions to get her to kind of say yes. yes to stuff. Yeah, and it was it was so creepy, that turn. And I thought, actually, that that was a powerful message because you're like, oh, look, even this harmless guy uh, feels threatening to someone who has gone through the trauma that she's gone through. And nope, everyone is potentially threatening. Yeah, this is sort of like a Miss 45 or um, I'll Spit on Your Grave style rape revenge movie, but like taken in abstract without any of the exploitational elements of those movies. And I actually really like I Spent in Your Grave, ultimately. But it's a much more troubling movie than this movie because it doesn't exploit her. It's just like, these men will not leave her the fuck alone. And the movie isn't, like, leering at them in any way. So it makes it sort of a, a cleaner message for us where it's just like, what do you even want out of her? You have to be in, an, like, she's not teasing you. She's not flirting with you. She's not even approaching you. Like, she is a pure innocent as best as you can be. She's as innocent as a murderer can be. <laughs> well, I guess, like, I'd, I'd rate the second one more of a manslaughter. Yeah. I, I, defensive. I, I, it's it's all defense. Yeah, it's, it's all self-defense. I let her off the hook again and again for this stuff because I'm just like, what were these fucking guys, what did they think they were doing? There's no excuse for their actions. I will say, too, just to just to tie up this knot and maybe, maybe tie up the, the movie as a whole... I don't know why this is a, a trope in movies that always surprises me, but when the landlord does start forcing himself on Carol and she grabs that straight razor and cuts the back of his neck, the the look of shock on his face, like, I don't know why that always pisses me off in movies. Does that happen in real life where someone is really, like, you feel like they would take a little bit of a time out and go and not be shocked by something violent that just happened to them as they're trying to rape someone. I I honestly think that in this situation, he didn't consider himself as committing a violent act. Like, it's sort of like the, the gender studies theory that, like, a rape isn't really sex because it's just sex for one person. It's violence for the other. Um, and I think that, like, for him, he didn't think he was committing a violent act. He was just committing, like, a human act or something by, like, assaulting her or going after her. And that he's, you know, he's only being human and, you know, she wasn't telling him no, like that sort of shit, the creepy shit. Yeah. And, and and I think that the feeling of shock is genuine because I think in real life, like people that don't realize that they're being violent, being stood up against. Like I bet you a lot of domestic abuse guys, like if their their spouse fights back, I bet you they're very shocked because they're like, this isn't supposed to happen. <laughs> Yeah, I guess like, you're. Pro- I guess you're probably right. It just it's they just think it's controlling their women or whatever. Even if it's not like straight out knockout punches, it's like they just think it's whatever their physical violence is against their or sexual violence is against the, the women yeah. and men in their life. They think it's just yeah that that feeling of ownership. It just it reminds me so much of those movies where like someone is pointing a gun at someone and is like about to kill them and then they escape. And then they start firing the gun back at that person, and that person reacts with, how dare you? You were trying to kill them. What did you, 
like you might not like the turn of events that's occurred, but it feels like there should be a recognition of, oh yeah, no, that's that's a fair that's a fair situation to happen. I'm the gun pointer. Yeah, it's it's just a weird. It's not specific to this movie, but I think I think it actually, you know, the way that you just described it, that he he was shocked because. I mean, in his mind, he was doing her a favor. He was helping her out of the rent, you know, helping so that she didn't have to pay rent. And Yeah, I think that I'll just sort of wrap that up by saying uh, gamer gators would hate this movie because they love rapists. It's a very depressing, we... that's an extremely depressing note to end on. Yeah. Um, no, we can, I think we should end on discussing it sort of as a genre movie. Because I think we've discussed it sort of, um, we've nailed, well, not nailed, but you know what I'm saying. I think we've gone after. Your phrasing in this entire episode is just hot garbage. It is hot garbage. (laughs) Just the worst. God damn, I just keep slipping into it. But uh, but the the movie really works as a a, a great little gender studies thing where it's, it's approaching men and women and trying to, giving, using interesting methods to, um, approach both men and women as victims and victimizers and and people that don't think about these issues in this manner. And uh, I think that that's where it's most successful. But the one thing I wanted to say is that, like, this is, this is uh, like an art house movie. And I think one of the reasons that it's not lumped in with, like, say, I Spit on Your Grave or Miss 45 is because it's so damn respectable. And it's not exploitive of Catherine Deneuve. Which I guess your definition of exploitive is different, but mine is does not include this. And it's made by someone that knows the material. <laughs> it is. Oh, God. It's horrible, right? It is horrible, but also it is weird that this is the respected one. Now, to be fair, I haven't seen those other movies. Maybe, maybe might be interesting to watch at some point. But yeah, um, so I, I really like I really like a spin in your grave. I think it's like a really... It's a movie that does not. I think that it's it's not as respectable because it has these long. This is a elongated rape sec- section, and it really revels in the violence perpetrated against the men as vengeance. And I gotta I tell you, the, can, uh, confetti just went out of my computer. <laughs> do we hit a hundred? I think we hit a hundred. Uh, do we hit a thousand? Um, but the but those are strengths to me as the movie because it's of those movies because they're not hiding from it. And I'm not saying that this movie is hiding from it because the movie is acting on its own terms and and approaching the topic from a much more approachable way. I don't think that by approaching a respectable genre movie, it doesn't mean that we're not going to only a go after respectable choices in the show and B that this isn't in the same genre as in some ways as other horror movies. Um, like I, yeah, and I, th- I think this makes a good contrast because our, our, the first movie that we covered was really just a constant, fuck yeah, this movie's amazing. And that that is a totally appropriate reaction, I think, to a movie, that it can just be this wild, crazy ride that you can have a lot of fun on. Fun. Yeah. Yeah. And this... And this is this is kind of the other side of the coin for genre movies where, yeah, this one's respectable, but it's also tackling some really big issues. And, you know, I uh, I mentioned on the onset of the show that I was a little worried about going to this type of movie, even though I was very excited to see the movie. It's, you know, it's been very high on my list of holy shit, do I need to watch this movie based on everything I've ever read about it? Uh, my love of surrealism in general, of horror movies. You know, and I, I, I hope I will say I, I had a lot of I thought this was a very enlightening conversation, maybe different than what we'll do normally, but I, but I hope that anyone who's listening to this uh, feels that we we tackled it in a way that was appropriate and respectful. 
Yeah, I hope so too. I think that. And, and I also want to say that I, I, I hope that if you did think that we tackled it appropriately, respectfully, that you, you think that I did a better job. <laughs> it's true. I'm just a sack of shit that probably just stumbled all over people's feelings today. Yep. I hope that you know that I worked through my sickness. I had better thoughts, just in general, a more likable person. Oh, definitely. One final note that I wanted to kind of land on is one of the, re- the, the reason that we're doing this movie on the show is because it is a straight ahead awesome horror movie. And I am a little disappointed. I mean, I'm, I'm fine because we ended up tackling the feminist stuff, which is more important, I think. But I'm a little disappointed we didn't talk about how creepy this fucking movie is. And not just in a men pursuing women kind of way, but in a true like surrealist vibe kind of way. The way that the apartment cracks apart and how the camera has this sort of looping vibe, it'll allow us to stay on creepy events as they happen, but it'll also, um, like when she's she's leaving the apartment after a long period of time, she's walking down the street, there's this creepy shot of the camera kind of swooping around her, and you just see her like bugged out, crazy eyes, like... All of that stuff works really well on the id-scratching, like, creep, unnerving creepiness that approaches you when you want, and what you want out of, like, a horror movie. And Also, we didn't even talk about, this movie has one of the best jump scares oh, in yeah. any movie ever. It's super, and it's, it's a super early, it feels super early for that kind of jump scare. Obviously, it, yeah, it, it's the Carl first... Souls has a lot of stuff like that that was earlier, but come on, it's it's very similar. It's the first part where you realize that it's not just that you realize that we're going to be seeing um, physical manifestations of her mental breakdown, and it's what what the scene is. It's after a lot. It's probably like forty minutes though of just. Yeah, she's she's clearly not engaging with the world, and she's upset, and there's the whole moments of her, you know, sitting in bed and listening to her sister have sex and the ticking clock. But then there's all of a sudden a moment where she's just in the bathroom and she swings the mirror around, and there's a uh, there's a man that you see for a split second in the mirror. Yeah, and it and it adds to the sense that she's retreating into this apartment, but she also doesn't feel even feel safe there. And that her problems are going to follow her into the apartment. That the apartment yeah. is not is not a escape. It's the type of horror movie where that that's my favorite type of horror movie where it's not. It does have that big jump scare, but it's mostly just a uh, a sense of dread until everything breaks down at the end. And I think um, you know the witch did that very well recently, where it's you know it's normal, it's normal. There's stuff breaking in that that destroys the normality but then it resets back to normal until kind of the uh the dam breaks and all the crazy shit happens and in this case that would be you know arms coming through and that that whole last sequence before she is found underneath the bed and i i um i think that the movie does a really great job of sharing that it's not just about it's not just about sexual assault it's also just about her social anxiety and the it's movie just about a good time it's just about movies. a good time that's at the best way to end this yeah yeah, so let's let's talk about what we're going to be doing the next couple of weeks. So we're going to go back to kind of almost a mix of uh, horror and batshit craziness with which a movie I'm I'm so excited to talk about this. Um, I am on record. I said this last week as well as calling it the best the best thing ever created by humans. Uh, I did realize that I forgot about uh, irrigation, uh, so I'm going to call it the second best thing ever created by humans. But it's pretty close, uh, and that is. Uh, Life Force, which is a batshit crazy space vampire movie that 
Peter has not seen, I have seen, and oh my god, I can't wait to talk about it. I also can't wait to talk about it because I love how Toby Hooper's career turned after Texas Chainsaw <laughs> Massacre. He did some batshit stuff. So I, I do think this might this might go back a little bit to us just going, holy shit, this was awesome. But that's a fun change of pace after this. We're week. gonna we're gonna we're gonna mix we're gonna mix stuff up because we get tired of doing we get tired of doing batshit all the time. We get tired of doing you know sort of we don't want to be ironically detached to anything we're doing. No, and we uh, we have a very long Google Doc. <laughs> yeah, that is approach it is going into the weeks. But for now, we're gonna start with Life Force. Uh, which was Aaron's pick, and I've not seen it. And then we're going to flip around and do Death Wish 3, which is one of my favorite exploitation movies of all time. And I think I have a pretty uh, I have a pretty good defense for it. So, uh, yeah, and I, I haven't seen it. We're going to try um, and keep diversity in the show in terms of, like, who's seen what, who hasn't seen what. Um, have a couple episodes every now and then where we've both seen it. or We're going to try and keep some sense of diversity in here, so sometimes we're approaching yeah, movies and, from different angles. Yeah, and we're not quite ready to announce guests yet, but we are fast approaching the time where you won't just have to listen to the two of us. I would say agree on things, but I feel like we we mixed it up a little in this. I I think so. So uh, yeah, we're we're gonna have some guests pretty soon. Uh, I should also I kind of want to do one piece of uh, housekeeping, if that's okay. And that is, um, I don't care for Peter as a person. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, we we had mentioned um, last week when we were talking about ideas and thoughts about the show. That, uh, that we were going to try to tackle games and music and some other stuff. And uh, Peter and I had had a conversation, and uh, it was pretty serious. We sat down. We had our lawyers present. And we decided that while uh, video games, uh, TV shows, music, there, there are some elements there that we want to discuss. When we do want to discuss those topics, those are not going to be part of the main show proper. That we're going to figure out some other way to be able to talk about those issues, but from a week-to-week standpoint, uh, our main focus is going to be movies. So if you do have any thoughts of movies that we should cover, movies you'd like to hear us talk about, uh, that's going to be our primary focus. Yeah, primarily genre movies, B-movies, cult movies, exploitation movies. Um, They can be uh, artsy and respectable, like Repulsion, or they can be grimy and uh kind of gross like uh, death wish 3 so we'd love any suggestions uh our website is listen to our podcast.com thank you for listening to our podcast i have been and will continue to be aaron armstrong and i have always been peter moran and i hopefully will continue to be him have a good night peter have a good night i, I love you i love you so much <laughs> oh that got weird <laughs> Yeah!